So, welcome everyone. Glad you're here. We are in Leviticus chapter 11. Last week, chapter 10. One of the few narratives in Leviticus. From here on, there's almost no narrative sections in the book. And it's important to see how the book's been arranged so we get an idea of where we're headed for the next few weeks. The first uh, 10 chapters all had to do with maintenance of the tabernacle. The sacrifices, the priest's ordination, last week the disaster that happened when Moses or Aaron's two sons tried to assert their authority uh, in, in a way that was completely against what God had, had spent you know, a week ingraining in them to do. So now, along that theme, because the because uh, Nadab and Abihu had offered uh, un impure or unauthorized sacrifices, God is going to now spend the next few chapters ingraining in Israel, particularly in Moses and Aaron, what it means to be uh, people who are clean or pure, and the. the the themes of cleanliness and purity are going to dominate the next uh, probably five chapters, four or five chapters. And it's not cleanliness in the sense of hygiene, although some of that does come into play. It's cleanliness in the sense of, uh, of fit, fitness to worship, fitness to enter the space where God is inhabited. So Levitical purity and modern hygiene are not the same thing. And they shouldn't be mistaken as the same thing. It's also not a case that Levitical purity is the same thing as modern um, ethics or morality, because they're not the same thing as well. There are things that are impure or unclean that are perfectly normal and ethical and absolutely okay. They just render a person unfit for entering into the presence of the tabernacle. So things like childbirth, things like sexual activity between husband and wife, uh, various ailments or diseases or things that are just part of normal life may render a person unclean, but that doesn't mean that that person was then seen as a, as a moral outcast or a worse sinner or anything like that. So that's something that most Christians just don't understand because most preachers don't understand it and they don't instill it in their flock. But we have to realize that, that, that the Levitical distinctions are not moral distinctions, and they're not about hygiene, necessarily. They're a different category. They're about holiness. And holiness occupies this realm that, that has a little bit to do with what we would think of as cleanliness, a little bit to do with what we would think of as morality and ethics. But more than anything, it has to do with being distinct. And that's the key, is, is all of these, this section that we're going to enter into in Leviticus for the next few weeks is all about Israel being distinct. That's what holiness means. That's why God will say, be holy, for I am holy. That means be distinct, be different. And it's going to begin in this chapter with Israel's diet. That's the key marker that's going to distinguish Israel from its surrounding neighbors, is its diet. And this would hold true well into the intertestamental period. There would be times where uh, leaders and rulers would take over Israel and they would try to get the people to embrace their culture. And the one thing that they could not do, no matter how hard they tried, was they could not get the Israelites that were faithful 
to embrace a non-Hebrew diet. So you read in the book of Maccabees and the apocryphal books, you read about Antiochus Epiphanes when he took over and he's trying to get uh, the people to eat uh, impure and unclean foods. And a mother is, her sons are brought before her, seven of her sons in succession, each one is demanded at sword point, eat this unclean food. The son says, I will not do it. The mother says, don't do it, better to die than eat unclean food. And the son says, you know, better they kill me than eat unclean food. And so the mother's seven sons are killed in front of her, one by one by one, because they won't eat the unclean food. Or books like Daniel, where, where Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel are in Babylon. They're not even in the landing world. They're taken away. And one of the things that is required of them at the beginning is to eat the food that the people in the king's court eat. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they say, well, we can't do it. We can't eat that. And so they actually have a special diet that they say, look, just let us eat this for a week and see if we're not just as healthy and just as strong and just as vibrant as the king's choice servants on the king's own unique diet. And, and they do. So the idea of food as a marker of one's cultural, religious identity is well-rooted in Israel's history. It goes all the way back to Torah and even before, even back during Genesis when Noah was taking animals on the ark, there was already the notion or the concept between clean and unclean animals. Animals fit to sacrifice and animals not fit to sacrifice. There was already those concepts in play. So it's not like this is inventing the concept of certain foods that are clean, certain foods that are unclean. Cultures already had their own views of which foods were clean and which foods were unclean, and they were all different. So it's not like this is just out of the blue, arbitrary stuff. It, it, it's a part of the ancient world into which God stepped to act. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we look at these food laws. The second thing to keep in mind is my favorite uh, biblical scholar in the world, Chris Wright, he said this, this is in his Deuteronomy commentary, because Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11 are the two food chapters in the Torah. So in coming on Deuteronomy, he said, a God who governs the kitchen should not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. Meaning that God, a God who is concerned with the life of his people down to what they prepare to eat is a God who is intimately invested in the life of his people as people. Not like in other ancient societies where as long as you worship the God in the right way and gave him the right sacrifices or said the right name or the right magical spell, you could live your life how you wanted to. The God of Israel was a God who says, I'm going to dwell in your midst and you are going to be holy. You're going to be different. You're going to be set apart. And that's going to extend into every aspect of your life. So these next few chapters are going to cover every aspect of Israelite life. And it's going to begin with the most foundational aspect of life, which is what we eat. There's no more foundational thing than what we eat. Your food determines your life, literally. We've kind of gotten away from that because food has become sort of a product or, or like a commercialized thing. But this is in the ancient Near East. This is when literally you don't eat, you die. You eat the wrong thing, you die. There's no refrigeration. Very easy to die from what you ate in the ancient world. So it cuts to the heart of who they are as a society. <clears throat> and these food laws then, what they show, the, the structure of Leviticus, 10 chapters on what happens in the tabernacle. 
then about four or five chapters on what happens outside the tabernacle. Then it culminates in chapter 16, which is Yom Kippur, the day that the entire community has their sins atoned for and the entire tabernacle is cleansed on an annual basis. So what this shows is this first half of Leviticus, 1 through 16, which is almost a self-contained unit, is showing that God is concerned with holiness in every aspect of life. And that's what as Christians we draw from these chapters in Leviticus, not which foods we should put on our table, not what we can and can't eat, because the New Testament will tell us why we don't go to these chapters for what we can and can't eat. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But so we don't look at these for our dietary reasons, and that's why diets that are based on the Bible, they're very popular and they're somewhat of a fad. You can sell Christians anything if you say it's biblical and they'll buy it. Um, but there's a lot of stuff out there that's like diet stuff. We gotta get back to a godly diet, biblical diet, Torah diet. You gotta eat Bible bars. And, you know, you gotta keep the, the Daniel fasts and then the Ezekiel grain bars and all of this stuff that people will sell you. But really, it's a real thing. But really, um, these food laws are, were not given for that purpose. There were, there's, there's no one theory about why certain animals were clean and why certain were unclean that encompasses all of the animals. Some, some interpreters say, well, it's because you know, pork is, is known to carry certain diseases and certain bacteria that's not found in other meats and if it's not properly cooked, then that could lead to et cetera, et cetera. Well, that may be true for pork, but it's not true for the birds that are mentioned necessarily. It's not true for rabbit. It's not true for some of the animals that are considered unclean in terms of diet. So that theory doesn't cover all of the reasons that God gave for differentiating. You know, they say, well, the fish that they're about to eat, the ones that they were not about to eat are bottom feeders. So they, they, you know, they eat the, the decaying parts of the other animals and this and that, and, and so that's why they're not good. Yeah, but that's not in and of itself unhealthy. People have been subsisting on those for, for you know, tens of thousands of years, if not longer. Um, the dietary concerns and hygiene concerns and health concerns, if those are the primary reasons for these laws, nowhere is that stated in the text. And that's the key. When people go to the Bible and start saying, well, these food laws are what we should get back to because this is what God originally intended. No, it's not. There's, that is never said in the text. And in fact, back in Genesis, when Noah got off the ark, God said, every animal I give to you for food. So there was this notion of God giving of all of humanity. This is for Israel. God saying, you, my people, your diet is going to be limited. So it's, 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 it's helpful to not read into these laws things that we think make the most sense of make the most sense of them when those don't always fit the facts. And there's other reasons. People say, you know, well, the laws were given because they were based on ancient criteria for clean and unclean and before refrigeration, so meat would spoil bad, so this was like the safest kind of meat. And, I mean, that might have come into play. That might be a, a benefit of keeping these laws, but it, it's not given in the text as the reason for these laws. Others have put forward, uh, you know, theories about, well, the animals that are clean and unclean is based on whether they fit the norm. 
for their sphere of existence. So the animals on the land that have um, split hooves and that they chew the cud, that's the norm for grazing animals. And animals that don't have those two criteria, they're seen as abnormal and, and, or kind of mixing of categories. Same thing, fish, it's normal for a fish to have scales and fins, and those that don't have scales or that don't have fins are kind of abnormal, so they skirt the line between categories. So anything that's seen as blending certain categories is considered off limits for Israel. Again, that might explain some of the distinctions, but it doesn't explain all of the distinctions. And some have said, well, the animals that feed on death or that feed or that, that kill for their prey are the ones that are considered unclean, like animals that, that, that eat like pigs, you know, they eat and root out dead material dead organic matter and they can digest that. They can turn that into meat and metabolize it. And the birds that are unclean are all predatory birds. So that's why they're concerned because they eat the, the they, they bring death, they eat death. Maybe that might be somewhere in the realm of what's going on in, in Leviticus because there is a distinction between death and life and things that are associated with death or considered impure, things that are associated with life or considered pure, etc. But that can't explain all of the distinctions. So it really, when we're reading the Levitical categories, the thing, one thing to keep in mind, and this is what every honest Levitical scholar will tell you, at the end of the day, we don't know why all the animals are classified the way they're classified. We just don't know. There's some good theories out there, and there's some that have more weight than others, but at the end of the day, it's something that we don't know. But here's the thing, for me at least, we don't know why God said you can eat from all the trees and not this tree. God specifically chose a tree. And he chose a tree that had fruit that looked good to eat, that looked normal and pleasing to the eye, and the fruit looked fine. But God said, not that one. The day you eat of that one, you'll die. We don't know why. And there are times in Scripture when God's laws make sense to us mentally. And there are times in Scripture where they may not be explicit, but we can kind of reason our way back to the sense that they would make. And then there are other times in Scripture where we, we can't. The best we can do is, is conjecture as to why these might have been in place. But at the end of the day, this was stipulations of the covenant. This was a stipulation of the covenant. So at, at, on one level, Israel is not invited to explore and explain the classifications. But on the other level, sometimes they do make sense and you can kind of get some general uh, principles when you're coming at it. The important thing to keep in mind for this chapter and the chapter, particularly when it comes to food, is think of the, this, this is what I think theologically is the payoff for this chapter in biblical theology. You have, think of three concentric circles of holiness. So in the outer circle, you have all of the animals, the animal kingdom, all the animals. Then within all of the animals, there's a subset of edible animals. In other words, for Israel, these are the animals you can eat. And it's significantly smaller. It's a minority of all the animals that Israel was allowed to eat. And then within that set, you have the animals that were allowed to be sacrificed, as we've seen from the first 10 chapters. The specific, the goat, the ram, the bull. Uh, so you have these three concentric realms of Israel's diet and, and Israel's understanding of holiness. Well, that is a perfect parallel 
and Jewish scholars and Christian scholars have proposed this. That's a perfect parallel to what Israel was called to be in and of themselves. You had all of humanity, all of humanity in the whole world. Then within that set of all humanity, you have a subset, the people of Israel. And they're a minority of that set. And then within the people of Israel, you have a smaller, tiny subset, the Levitical priests. And they're the ones who deal directly with God. And so the three concentric levels of humanity are mirrored in the three concentric levels of the animal kingdom that can be eaten. So Israel's diet is to reflect Israel's identity and is to teach them their identity and the identity of the rest of the world. And here's the kicker. You see hints in the Old Testament that one day the things that are considered out here and unclean are going to be considered clean. So Zechariah talks about even the pots and the common pans and the wooden spoons and even the bells on the horse's bridles. The horses were, dietarily speaking, unclean animals. Could eat horse. Even the bells on their bridles will be called holy to the Lord, will be sanctified. And this is a vision Zechariah had of, of, of the renewal of creation. Then, in the New Testament, when Jesus goes into a Gentile country and ministers to a Gentile, now Jesus didn't do this often. He very rarely left Israel. But there are one or two times when he goes outside of Israel and he ministers to a Gentile. In this case, I think he goes to Tyre and, and he ends up healing a woman's daughter, Gentile. And he talks about this distinction and he says, he uses this Jewish phrase, you don't throw the children's bread to the dogs. And he uses a, a phrase of an unclean animal, the dogs. And so within that setting, within that circling around in that context, uh, that's when then Jesus, Mark 7, uh, makes the statement that it's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your body that makes a person impure. And then Mark says, and thus he rendered all foods clean. So with the coming of the Messiah then, there became this shift of Jesus saying, well, actually it's not the food you eat that makes you unclean, which was totally radical mindset for anyone who was Jewish. I mean, it, it was just so radical that even his disciples didn't follow through with that until after Pentecost. Then the Holy Spirit comes. Then you have Peter hearing about this Gentile that wants him to come to his house. And Peter's up on the, roof, the, the rooftop and he's praying and he has a vision of what? This blanket being let down filled with unclean animals. And God tells Peter, get up, kill, eat. Three times. Three times God tells And Peter's response is, I've never eaten anything before. Even though Jesus had already laid the seed work for the idea that it's no longer about dietary. So you have then God saying, no, don't call unclean what I am calling clean. And then Peter realized, oh, the, the, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. See, God wanted to tell Peter a lesson about Jew and Gentile. What did he use to do? Do that. Food. Clean and unclean foods. Later then, when you get to Romans, and Paul is dealing with churches where Jew and Gentile Christians have finally come together after years of being separated when Claudius uh, kicked the Jews out of Rome and then Nero let them back in. And so there was this whole rupture. And that's what the book of Romans is all about, is how to be Christians when you have a church of Jews and a church of Gentiles. And Paul's writing to both of them. And in Romans 13 and 14, when he starts giving them directions on how to live together without just totally arguing and backbiting and, and fussing over things that don't matter, he flat out says, 
I am convinced in the Lord that no food in and of itself is unclean. And so you see that Paul had finally turned the corner that Jesus had already started steering people in, that the food distinctions of the Levitical covenant were no longer binding. Why? Because it was just arbitrary and, and God said, okay, we're done with that, we're going to do this. No, because the food distinctions were specifically symbolic of the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. So when that distinction gets erased in the new covenant and all Gentiles who believe in Messiah are invited into the family of Israel, that means that those food laws that delineated Jew from Gentile within the kingdom of God no longer have a place because they have served their purpose and now they've been fulfilled in the Messiah who was the ultimate sacrificial lamb and now in him there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So when people say, well, you know, you don't believe the Bible because you don't keep certain laws. We're Christians where we just pick and choose which laws we like. We don't, you know, we don't obey the food laws, so why should we obey any of the other Old Testament laws? It's really important for believers to have an understanding of this basic flow of Scripture to be able to answer that and say, well, that, here's a fairly good reason for why we don't keep those dietary laws. It's not just because I like bacon-wrapped shrimp, though I happen to like bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's not the reason that I think I can go ahead and eat it, even though the Bible says not to. It's because I am not a Jew under the Mosaic Levitical covenant. That's why I can eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Because in Christ, the Levitical food laws came to their fulfillment, and then he inaugurated the new covenant in which the distinction between Jew and Gentile was done away with. And so now in him, and Ephesians 2 talks about this, Galatians 2 talks about this, in him, those distinctions no longer hold. So that's why the two biggest mark, the three biggest markers of Jewish identity in the New Testament are seen as they don't really matter anymore in Jesus, which were dietary law, circumcision, and the holy feasts. Those were the things that, that delineated Israel as opposed to pagan Gentiles. And now in Jesus, in Christ, we see that those things were all hints and shadows of the true identity of God's people. So, are followers of Jesus in the New Testament free to continue keeping the dietary laws if they are Jewish? Absolutely. And Paul even talks about it. Some people's conscience won't let them eat unclean food. Don't make them. Right? They, they are free to keep kosher food laws. They are free to continue keeping the laws and, and eating the unclean, whatever. Don't bother them. Don't disturb them if that's what they want to do, if that's how they feel they reflect God's holiness. But at the same token, those people should not look down on the people who were never under the Levitical covenant to begin with, who have no problem conscience-wise eating unclean foods. They shouldn't look down on them as if by eating unclean foods they are somehow defiling themselves. Because that's taking an old covenant concept and trying to squeeze a new covenant uh, ethic through it. And it doesn't work that way. It's, it's the exact opposite of how it should be done. So these are the problems that the early church dealt with. And this is why when we read Paul's letters and he's talking about this stuff, Paul the Pharisee of Pharisees who knew Torah backwards and forwards, who understood its purpose and then saw it in light of Jesus, can make these claims that seem very un -Pharisaic. 
like all foods are clean, or that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter anymore. It'd be scandalous unless Paul had worked through the biblical theological uh, implications of what he's saying. So when we're reading the food laws, and this, this is an introduction today to the food laws specifically, and we'll look at them next week in more detail because we're running out of time, but uh, it, it's, it's sort of a, an intro to how to think about these parts of the Old Testament that seem very specific and peculiar and weird. They were to set Israel apart from their neighbors. And sometimes we don't know why he chose, why did God say don't wear garments made of two types of mixed fibers? Well, we don't know any health benefit to that. But what we do know is that was a object lesson in saying, because you're gonna be distinct. You're gonna be separate. So even the clothes you wear aren't gonna be blended haphazard. Aren't gonna be this hybrid, aren't gonna be assimilated. It was very important in the Levitical covenant for this time, for its purpose. And then when the fullness of time had come, and the Messiah comes on the scene, then the promised new covenant comes into effect. It takes the old, takes its ethical core and its symbolic meaning and elevates it to its fullness in reality. That's how the old and the new work together in biblical theology. And, and, and it's rare to, to hear be, people be able to explain this, your everyday Christians, because for some reason churches think, well, this isn't important to teach. We'd rather just teach you to memorize the Ten Commandments. It has so little to do with, with the overall theme of what's going on in Scripture, the flow of biblical theology. is so much more important than just being able to memorize verses or say the Ten Commandments or this and that. So much more important. Um, when we read chapter 11 next week, the thing to keep in mind as well is it is about food. It is from the perspective of a cook, not a biologist, not a taxonomist, not a modern scientist. It's not about the classification of the animal kingdom according to, you know, uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I think that's right, and if it is, that's awesome because I learned that in biology, I couldn't even remember it. But it's not about that taxonomical classification at all. It's about food, it's about what Israel can eat, and it's about the animals in their vicinity. So it's going to focus on those. And like the creation account, it's going to focus on three animals in three realms that mirror the creation account. It's gonna focus on the things that swim in the waters, the things that fly in the air, and the things that move on the land. Just like creation in Genesis 1. And it's gonna even use terms that harken back to Genesis 1. It's gonna talk about kind. You can eat all kinds of such and such. And that's not the English expression of like all kinds, meaning just any. It's specifically saying you can eat any kind. And that's a Hebrew classification that was introduced in Genesis 1 when the animals got produced according to their kinds. So there is a theology of creation within these food laws that is, that is pretty uh, noticeable to those who are familiar with Genesis 1. So it harkens back to that. And it's also going to talk about uh, some things are unclean. NIV will use that term, unclean, that Hebrew word tame. And it, it has the sense of polluting 
Like this, this will pollute. This will transmit uncleanness, which will affect your standing within the tabernacle system. So that's unclean. Then there'll be another kind of creature, another kind of classification that's either translated as abomination or detestable. NIV says detestable, King James and others say abomination. That, that's a Hebrew word, sheketz, and that is a different concept than unclean. What that means, it's a technical term. Now in English, abomination, we think of like Hitler or something. I mean, we just think of the worst you can think of, because abomination is a pretty terrible word. But that's not the term, that's not what this phrase meant in the food laws, in the dietary laws. It was a technical term, and it meant something that is off limits. That's its basic meaning in terms of the feel. If you want an English equivalent, it meant off limits, you can't eat this stuff. That's all it meant. Wasn't necessarily polluting, unless you ate it. It wasn't inherently evil. Remember, all the animals got created according to their kinds were good, were very good. It wasn't any of that. Something being sheket, something being detestable, something being an abomination, when it's talking about food, it's meaning this is off limits. Don't eat this, all right? This is not in line with your diet. Everything else you can eat. So that's important to keep in mind because we read abomination and then we just read it associated with something like bugs or snakes and then we're just connote all of these evil thoughts of, and, it's, and it's not. All of creation is good. All of the animal kingdom is good. It all has its purpose. However, when it comes to eating, some of these things are gonna be off limits. And therefore, in the mind of Israel, they are to be detestable, to eat. So seeing an animal out in the field, a, a, a mouse, a, a, you know, a gopher or something running around, an Israelite would be like, that's detestable, oh, get it, you know. It'd be like, yeah, there's an animal. If you took that and killed it and put it on their plate, that's when it would become detestable to them because they were not about to eat it. So this chapter is not, again, a moral or ethical ranking of the animal kingdom. The last thing we'll mention, and then we gotta go. We'll pick it up next week in the text. Uh, this is your introduction. In theology, they call this the prolegomena to the food laws. <laughs> the last thing to keep in mind is these are from an ancient Near East perspective, which means it uses phenomenological language. We mentioned this back in Genesis, but a lot of you weren't even here back then. Phenomenological language is describing something the way it looks or appears rather than the way it scientifically is. We use it every day when we talk about what time is sunrise or that's a pretty sunset. We know the sun's not rising and the sun's not setting. The earth is spinning in relation to the sun, which is staying still relative to it. However, that's really cumbersome to say. We all know that we don't mean that. So among English speakers, it is perfectly acceptable and not at all unscientific or ignorant to say sunset, right? Same thing in Hebrew. When it talks about things like uh, things that go on all fours, it's not saying, well, insects have four legs and that's what we think and then because we're ignorant and unscientific and real, we realize today because we're enlightened that insects have six legs and so therefore the Bible is wrong and it can't be trusted, right? It's not, going on four legs was just a phenomenological way of describing things that scurry on the ground. The Hebrews could count. They could pick up a grasshopper and eat it. They did eat it and they could see there's six legs there. But that's, 
not how they would describe it because the language just describes something going on four legs is something crawling on the ground. Same thing with chewing the cud. In Hebrew, literally, it brings up the cud. Uh, we know that as animals that are ruminants. They have four chamber stomachs, they chew food, it goes into one stomach, they bring it back up, they chew it again to get more nutrients out of it, it goes into the second chamber, digest, they bring it back again, they chew it. It's a way of maximizing their nutrient intake through eating low nutrient things like grasses and uh, plants. However, in Israel, in ancient Hebrew, chewing the cud was a phenomenological way of describing animals that do this with their mouth, back and forth, a lot, like rabbits. Rabbits don't chew cud, they don't bring their food up, They, but they, if you watch the rabbit, it's always like chewing. It looks like an animal that chews the cud. So it is classified as, it is described like cows and other animals as chewing the cud. The only reason I mention this is because you go to dumb skeptic websites, not all skeptic websites are dumb, but there are dumb skeptic websites, and they'll list 500 Bible contradictions, and they'll put stuff like this. According to the Bible, rabbits chew their cud. Ha ha, checkmate. And it's so dumb, it's like, well, that's somebody that doesn't know Hebrew. That's somebody that lacks basic English comprehension. Um, so when you see that, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I've just seen it so much over the years. That's what you're looking at in these descriptions of the animal kingdom. It's going to use phenomenological language. It's going to describe things that look rather than the way they biologically are in our postmodern, post-scientific culture. So all of that said, we didn't read a word of scripture yet. That's okay. Because we'll come back next week. We'll read chapter 11. We'll look at these animals. And we'll see what it was like in ancient Israel uh, to get their meat that they would live on and how that had to work. But we're out of time. So have a great week, everyone.